Hello. It is a, once again, the review squared. Liz coming to you wherever you get podcasts. So glad to be here talking to you once again. And before we get any further, I'm getting karaoke. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Alejandro de Vesadra. And have we got a show for you this week? Just to note, uh, Haley Smilo and Madison Young are missing today. We both we dearly miss them, of course. Um, oh, so b- before we even get into the episode, I do want to share some wonderful news. Uh, if you did listen to the introduction of the episode from two weeks ago, we did mention a lot of essentially that we were disaffiliating with Blaze until our uh, station manager, Rayleigh Klein, stepped down. Well, I'm not going to talk about the whole situation because it is quite frankly a mess and well beyond the scope of this show. But we do feel like there has been a satisfactory conclusion to what has happened. So we are coming back to Blaze Radio. We are, we are, we were never planning to just completely run away from them. We didn't want to do it. But somehow we will come back to Blaze. We will have more details on that in the next week or two, we hope. There's a lot that needs to be figured out that is outside our hands. I just want to bring that out. So celebration. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to the actual episode. Um, Let's talk about the US government's war on TikTok. Um, or shall I say, uh, try to briefly explain some of the concerns that led to the Trump administration's decision to ban TikTok and WeChat, which is a communications app owned by Tencent, a uh, Chinese-based company, from operating on U.S. app stores starting midnight on September, sorry, sorry, starting midnight Sunday, September 20th. So let's backtrack a few months to understand exactly how this started. According to Wired, back in July, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and White House advisor Peter Navarro both went on Fox News to warn that the U.S. was considering a ban on apps with ownership in China, including popular social media platform TikTok, because of security concerns. Right around the same time, Wells Fargo banned it on company devices too. In the time since then, ByteDance, the owners of TikTok, have been in talks with different American-based corporations on selling TikTok's US operations to them. At the time of this recording, TikTok is in talks with Oracle, a company known best for database management and enterprise cloud software to sell a partial stake in TikTok to them, along with control over user data and being able to look over the security code they follow according to foreign policy. As to whether TikTok specifically is a security risk, there are a lot of views on that, ranging from it's Chinese Communist Party espionage to this is just xenophobia. One article in Gizmodo I read, though, makes a different case. In the article titled, It Doesn't Matter Who Owns TikTok, the author makes a case that if the problem is that the Chinese government could access personal data through a China-based corporation, selling TikTok does not even start to solve the problem. I highly recommend reading this article for yourself, but it points out how our data is making its way to China-based servers, 
through social media networks and other websites that are not TikTok. It is mostly through the mess and cover of ads and third-party trackers that personal info winds up there. Many experts have also agreed that while some of TikTok's data collection practices are not great, they seem not to be worse than standard advertising-based platforms, according to Wired. A quote from Will Strafach, I'm sorry if I'm butchering this man's name, an iOS security researcher and creator of the privacy-focused Guardian Firewall Lab, in the article sums up that line of analysis. Quote, for the iOS app available to Western audiences, it appears to collect very standard analytics information. Most data collection by apps concerns me. I don't like any of it. However, in context, TikTok appears to be pretty tame compared to other apps, end quote. On the other side of this is the Trump administration. And according to the New York Times, Trump recently said at a press conference, quote, maybe we can keep a lot of people happy, but we have to have the total security from China, end quote. TikTok specifically will have until November 12th to follow the government conditions laid down, which includes selling a part stake to an American corporation. Anyways, I threw a lot of information and there is a lot I didn't even talk about. So any thoughts from the panel? Um, I think that I don't personally have much my personal like life out of stake is I don't use TikTok. But in terms of I, I think it was actually interesting. It was a good thing that it sort of provoked a bit more discussion about um you know what is being collected on us. And I do wish people made more of the connection between, you know, okay, if it's bad for a Chinese corporation or one that's connected to the Chinese state to be collecting all this information on us then we should also be thinking more so about what American companies and what European companies and what our own state is collecting on us. So would, I do wish there was a bit more discussion about that. Um, although of course, and also that in terms of um, generally, I think in terms of for, for the average American citizen, we should be more concerned about what our own companies and what our own government's collecting on us, just like Chinese, the general Chinese citizen probably is more concerned about what their own government's collecting on them rather than what, say, the United States is, because that's a, a more immediate um, concern to us. I, of course, there's more concern, for instance, in, in say, like certain uh, business sectors or within the United States government. So it makes sense there that they don't want, for, for instance, TikTok to be on um, any really critical uh, employees' um, personal technology. Um, I think when I heard this news, the thing that I was most concerned about was the creators on the app, because I think oh, um, in the past like year, um, TikTok has kind of become like a really important platform for like Black, Indigenous, and other um, people of color advocating for social justice and other causes and um, disabled people, as well as a big platform for the LGBTQ community and them advocating for uh, all those groups advocating for their rights and other social justice issues, like I said. And I have followed a lot of creators who said that they were concerned that um, because they saw their views going down and that they were worried that their videos, because of what they were advocating for, were being suppressed by the algorithm. 
And I know recently TikTok started the Creator Fund and it's like kind of been like a mixed bag on like how it's benefited, but it at least is some source of revenue um, for creators. And so I'm wondering if, you know, new people can't download the app, how are they going to get new people to watch their videos and in turn, you know, be able to get revenue off the creator fund. And if they're already seeing their views kind of go down, like how are people who are relying on TikTok for their income or for a platform for a small business or anything else they're doing, how is this going to affect them? So I'm hoping that TikTok is going to find a way to support their creators who they, they said that, you know, I'm assuming by putting out a creator fund, they're wanting to support people who want to make TikTok their career or at least a platform for them. So I'm hoping they can somehow sustain those creators. Is that so? That was what I was most worried about when I heard this news and the larger news of, you know, TikTok being, you know, banned, obvious and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really messy situation, and it does bring up a lot of questions. Um, I am not going to come on here and pretend I am an expert on constitutional law, national security law, or anything of that sort. I am not. However, this does bring up some interesting questions, and... I guess I'd need to dig a little further into, um, I did not have much time to prepare this story actually, um, on the, like, the legal basis of this. I got like, and, and Alejandro, I think you really hit an important point too, that people do use this platform as a means of making money and like it's a, a means of making a living or directing people to things that then help them make a living and, and to do some really great activism. And I guess, I guess what are we to say to the people, especially those that are making a living off it, what, what are we to say to them? Like, oh yes, we're just gonna, goodbye. Like it feels a little haphazard in some ways. And it does bring up some not great questions on what's going on in Washington in terms of, is this just another, let's stick it to the Chinese government because, uh, because we want to start a cold war? I mean, that's a legitimate question. I feel like that is a question worth asking. Is this just a dumb cold war move? I mean, to answer, uh, since I am the foreign policy guy on this show, um, the it's a mix. I think there's a lot of legitimate concerns. And it, I think especially so amongst government employees and amongst people critical to our national security infrastructure. But there's also a certain element to it is that they're both for domestic political reasons as part as their but also that in the foreign policy world, there's been a reorientation um, towards competing with China and Russia. And so in general, we part of that competition is, is targeting things uh, like TikTok that are in a sense, useful ways for it, things that the other side likes to use to have an influence on your population. You wanna ban those. 
um, just like the Chinese don't like having um, really American social media active in in China. So I think it's a bit it's it's a variety of things, and it's also for some of it it's just uh, red meat in a sense for the base of saying you know I'm standing up to China, so I'm banning you know this really popular social media app that's been developed by them. So I think it's it's a it can be both. It's it's both you know um, part of a, a broader um, movement towards greater competition and, and tensions with China and it's uh, for legitimate security concerns. Yeah, and I completely like that from just reading what I, the reading I had to do just to even get that short piece I just did for the show. This is something I've actually been following for a bit um, in terms of the security parts of it. And yeah, there are some not great stuff, but the worst part is, is that every social media network does it. Like, if the problem is privacy, then what needs to happen in Washington is we need to talk, like they need to talk about what can we do to increase privacy online and to protect user data, because quite frankly, the laws on that are borderline, they exist, but the, 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 do they exist though? Yeah, and that's what I sort of mean in terms of the, if it's about security, then I mean, for, for most people, there's, in church, China could know everything about you. Like the Chinese government can know everything about an American citizen, but for the for the vast majority of American citizens that really would never have a tangible impact likely on their daily life, I would say. I mean, I'm sure there might be, I mean, no one in general really likes the idea of a foreign, foreign power or our own companies having this much information on us, but if there's like a legitimate belief in wanting to better protect the privacy of American consumers, then we should definitely look at that domestically as well. I was getting insane. If it's privacy, then definitely we should be looking at what a lot of social media companies are collecting on us. Right. It's bad if Silicon Valley abuses your privacy, just as it's bad if a foreign corporation abuses your privacy. I think most people, I think most reasonable people can agree on that. I feel like that's not a particularly hot take. When I th think back to social media platforms, I think TikTok actually, my, in my opinion, might be the most polarizing platform in the past couple of years. Because unlike other platforms, when you're scrolling the For You page on TikTok, you, you can really find anything. And there's so many different sub-communities, um, kind of much like Reddit, but obviously not in that formal way that you can find them. But you know, on TikTok, you more kind of stumble upon all these different sub-communities of people that are on TikTok. And there's so many. I mean, there's gardening TikTok, there's activism TikTok, there's dancing TikTok, influencer TikTok, um, gay TikTok, there's straight TikTok, like alternative TikTok, like there's just so many different communities on TikTok, which I think has made the platform so polarizing and so kind of confusing to so many people. Right, I'll tell you right here, and I think I might have said this on the show before in the past, I do not have a TikTok. Like, I still do not. I might get one now, um, just because I'm like, okay, what, what's the what's the fuss over all this? And I guess I might as well enjoy the last few weeks before it is gone from the United States and be able to say, I too once had a TikTok where I did not post anything. I'm never posting one. Um, 
I say this now, then six months later, this isn't bad. Uh, but like, yeah, you're right, Alejandro. And it, isn't that mostly because of, and correct me if I'm wrong, like the algorithm really steers you, like once you start liking certain content, it really steers you in the niche more so than like any other social media platform. Correct. It definitely steers you in a certain direction. I think, I think sometimes it is really targeted, but then every couple of clips, you get something that you just would have never guessed. And then you're like back to square one and you're like, what? So yeah, it's, it's really a platform where you can find anything and everything. Like if, if there's something that you're interested in, someone's probably making a TikTok about it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of cool history TikToks. I, for those of you who don't know me personally, I am a huge history nerd. So <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, John, you've been a little quiet. Any thoughts? Um, I'm a big TikTok user. I love TikTok. Um, I, it showed me like a lot of things that I didn't know, like plus with like what Alejandro and what everyone else was saying. There's like a lot of hacks on there that I've learned. Um, I don't know, it's just been interesting. I don't know, I'm like kind of sad to see that, but you know, um, there's been talks about it like in July, um, August, and um, I don't, is it gonna be the next Flappy Bird or am I just, I don't know. And that's the thing, I don't think anyone knows. There's no precedent to this. Right. I think people, in my opinion, I think people have been waiting for the downfall of a social media network for a while now. Because it's been a while since we were really introduced to a new social media network and TikTok was that social media network that we were introduced to. It's like, oh, a new one, like, um, and now we're seeing it get taken down. <laughs> um, so I think people have kind of, you know, not, they didn't, people may have not necessarily wanted to be TikTok, but people have been waiting for one of these platforms to be taken down in their lifetime. I just wish like the energy would be taken from this to like COVID and like trying to like be more proactive with COVID and getting a vaccine and managing ways to decrease cases and um, in states where cases are high instead of focusing on a social media app. Grant, yes, it's important. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, we're in a worldwide pandemic. I think it's I think it's fair to say an app that largely got popular off dances such as the Renegade um, are definitely the least worries for the government, in my opinion. Yeah, it's like I agree a hundred percent. Like, there's some legitimate concerns about privacy, like, but. I mean, let, let, let's, let's look at the bigger picture here. In the year of our Lord, 2020, we are going through a global pandemic. We are still in an economic downturn. Like things have gotten a little better. Like we might've seen the bottom and we might be coming out of it, but we're still not in a good place economically. So many people are out of work and it's like, forgive me for just being a little not enthusiastic that this is where the government's throwing their intentions and attention and energy right now. I feel it's, I feel it's a little too borderline, let them eat cake 
Like it's a little, it's start, it's not there yet, nowhere near there, but it's starting to get go down that road that leads to such things as a let them eat cake, which fun fact, uh, because I'm a history nerd, was never said by Marie Antoinette. It was just attributed to her by the revolutionaries. Uh, <laughs> The, okay. The, the oh, kid, sorry. If um, if everything, if it just goes down in the in the fashion that it seems to be going down, the kids had fun, and <laughs> I think that you know the fun they had was worth it. Yes. So why I'm not one of those TikTok kids, uh, I say three cheers to all of you on TikTok, many of whom are my friends. You, you made some great content. I've actually been in a few. I'm not saying which ones I've been in. Um, and who's Alejandro's laughing because I can tell you as much as I was in one of his. Um, but <laughs> if you'll ever find him on TikTok, I'll probably be somewhere on there. But I don't have one myself. Uh, anyways, any thoughts before we move on? Oh, it wasn't Alejandro's for the record. It was one of our friends, Austin, uh, who is a listener of this show. I think we can move on. Yeah, and it's, I'll hand it off to John. Thank you. Thanks so much, y'all. Thanks, Gideon. So my story this week is about ASU announcing um, the rest of its fall plans and its interim spring plans going into next semester. So in light of COVID, many universities in the regions of Arizona have announced their plans going on with the fall semester. Um, just like the other universities, ASU announced it today. Provost Mark Serral uh, sent an email out to the entire ASU community that wrote, Session C will now end on Friday, December 4th. The final exam week originally scheduled December 7th through December 12th will not take place. All instruction after the Thanksgiving break will be remote. Final exams where applicable should be held on the last day of class during the week of November 30th. Session B will conclude on December 4th as originally scheduled. Also a note, fall 2020 commencement will be virtual. Um, the fall 2020 university commencement ceremony and special interest convocation scheduled for the week of December 14th will be converted to a virtual format. Um, he also mentioned that he will be posting more information soon. He also announced a new ASU Innovation Quarter, which is a collection of educational opportunities that will take place between the fall 2020 and spring 2021 semesters designed to leverage and highlight ASU's innovation. This non-credit bearing experiential learning program will offer students the chance to explore something new, make new connections, build career skills, and affirm their commitment to lifelong learning, Sarah said. And then he wrote expectations for spring semester which are consistent with our efforts to always meet learners where they are in the spring 2021, ASU will offer courses in a variety of learning environments to accommodate students' needs depending on location or circumstance as a result of COVID-19. The university remains in learning mode two, where instruction is delivered to students by faculty in a hybrid option. Um, so basically, it will be the same as fall semester, but he did indicate that any vaccines come out or anything changes, which in my opinion is highly unlikely. 
will change the result of how spring semester will look. And I've been asking the deans for when this email is going to come out since July. And I think that I don't know why they waited until now to send this email out. I mean, maybe they were being optimistic and thinking that there was going to be a vaccine. But to be honest, I really didn't think this, there was going to be one. I heard people saying in March or April that this was going to be over by July or August. Well, surprise, it's September and we're still not over. And I don't think we're going to be over it by November or even the spring semester with the vaccine, especially since we're getting colder weather in the majority of the country, and especially since blue season is right around the corner. I don't know. That's just me. And I think NAU, I think they announced at the beginning of, no, I even think they announced at the summer what they were doing with their plans on Thanksgiving. And U of A also announced that too, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know why ASU always waits to announce like stuff like this. I just think they should do it before. Um, yes, it's still September, but my point is, um, same, this, this is my same point with, I'm getting off topic here. This is my same point with the mandatory testing for all ASU like residents with housing and everything. Like, I don't get why you would wait until August 1st to mandate all coronavirus testing when you know the majority of your student population is out of state students and some states uh, don't offer documentation that you've been tested. In some states you have to be, you have to have symptoms to go in and, and get a COVID test and you have to get a referral because a simple, I have to do it for college is simply not enough. And when you put all this burden on your students, it just creates chaos. And I don't know how they dug themselves out of the grave with that one, but moral of the story is I wish they told us before about this and not just now. Any thoughts? Am I correct to believe that we're going to be taking exams early then? Is that what this email is saying? So your final exams, I guess so. It will be the last week of classes. That's when they have to do final exams. Or I guess I'm saying like earlier than December, like it's going to we're going to be doing finals like at the end of November. Is that what it's saying? Sorry. Yeah, the last week of November. Well, yeah, because so that that week like after Thanksgiving is going to be like finals. Like that's just finals. Like that, wrapping up the class and finals. That's earlier than it would usually be, right? Yeah, because it's usually that week, the week grace period, and then it's finals the next week. Yeah, that is some, definitely something that concerns me as someone who has a lot, a lot of anxiety surrounding tests. And like, I don't know, I kind I, I, I'm like, I, I really don't want to spend Thanksgiving like studying for finals, but it looks like that might be the situation for me. Yeah, so basically they just moved finals a week up. They just got rid of a week of the, of the, of the semester, one week off the calendar and moved it up a week, which I understand why they did it, but uh, oh boy, what a fun one that they probably should have announced sooner. Like, come on, come on. Most of us knew that, most of us could have made an, like all the educated guesses I've heard from people that are actually experts in this field with epidemiology were like, uh, folks that like, hold on, it's not ending tomorrow. And I just don't get how 
they're like waiting for like new like vaccines or something that could come out of like the sky like now i mean we i think we need to all use our head here and like asu like i just can't believe that um we'd have to wait so long for this decision i think everyone knew there wasn't going to be a vaccine going into the school year um in fact i've heard like some um companies testing it out and i've heard it like going wrong um i just a legitimate vaccine i i just if we're let's think rationally here about a legitimate vaccine coming out by november december especially in the colder months i just don't think that was rationally going to happen when we started the school year in which and if things do change then great that's great we can finally go back to being normal but i just don't support waiting last minute to make decisions at a major university that has like nearly 70,000 students on their campus. How are smaller schools handling this so much better than we are? I mean, um, we did get number one in innovation for the sixth year in a row, but we need to send out these emails like in a timely manner to do it before, to not wait until last minute. I just, especially for an out-of-state tuition rate that we're all paying, I just, think we deserve more transparency between the students and the ASU staff. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly, John. The administration needs, like, I feel like this is the recurring, like, once every, like, few week episode we do where we're like, administration, please do better. Um, so I'm going to say it again, administration, please do better. Um, because yeah. yikes, um, a lot of this stuff was foreseeable and they're delivering it now in September. I mean, better late than never, but still come on. And to your point, like on what's next, at least they're honest enough to say like, yeah, things aren't changing too much for spring is basically what that amounted to. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what yeah. they're going to do about spring break and there's a lot of questions. Because I think if you're going to cancel fall break and minimize for travel risk, then why wouldn't you just cancel Thanksgiving break right there and then? Because in July, he, President Crow canceled fall break. And then I asked, I was like, what about Thanksgiving break? That's the exact same situation. And it's been how many months since July? and we're now finding like we're now like finding out about this i just it just i don't know i question it why you would cancel fall break and not thanksgiving break right there and then i guess i guess and just this might have been the plan that they revealed today must have been one they they might have had in the back of their heads the entire time they might but, have. I just, uh, I just wish they would be like transparent and release it sooner. But I guess it's not the plan. Yeah. Anyways, thank you so much, John. Always Thanks, so grateful. Uh, I guess we gotta take it on and take it out outside of our nation's borders for a few minutes with Ethan.
Yes, as always, your guide to the world. Um, so I wanted to briefly talk about um, because it's it's both received it's received a decent amount of coverage, but most of the coverage I would say is generally politically more so political takes and less so really what what this uh, what this event really means and out so the specific event is um, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain pursuing normalization with uh, Israel. And this has been generally referred to as the Abraham Accords. And so there's a lot of different differing views on really what the impact of this is. And I would say, to be honest, my, um, I think the best insight, which I'll draw, draw from, but also bring some other insights is from what the New York Times editorial page put out on the normalization deal, which is that it is a good thing. Like legitimately, it is a good thing for regardless of really what, what you think of the region, of, of Israel-Palestine conflict, it's generally a good thing for countries to be, pr pursue normalization and to engage in trade with one another. I mean, the UAE and, and Bahrain have been nominally on, have been pretty much on Israel's side for the last 40 years. And so this is, in my view and, and the editorial page's view, really just an, a recognition of the general sort of um, alignment of the Middle East at this point, and less so really a matter of truly bringing peace. So it's a good thing, but it really isn't as, as sizable of an impact as, the, as both Netanyahu's administration and the Trump administration have been trying to make. And that's because in the end, this is more so just, again, like I say, this is, this is a temporary recognition of the Sunni Shite alignment of the Middle East where, where um, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain and most of the Sunni Gulf states sort of find themselves in maybe not exactly on the same side, but they all have found that they don't, uh, they have a distaste for Turkey and Iran and that they've aligned themselves in this sort of this cold war within the Middle East between those two sides. And so this is, this is a way for Israel and the UAE to increase their trade and, and be in a better position for one another to pivot against Iran and Turkey. And also the United States already had military bases and extensive trade relationships with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. I mean, our, one of our largest naval bases and air force bases in the Middle East is based in Bahrain. And so, like I said, more so, it's just a, a general recognition of the alignment. And that's because really the, the if you look back, the, the original, I guess, starter of the Arab-Israeli um, conflict, the, the tensions in the Middle East was the disputed uh, establishment of Israel-Palestine, of, of um, that the Arabs, Arab states had always, at least at a state level, had maintained that they supported the Palestinians' right to their own state and opposed Israeli um, transgressions against them. And that conflict, that dispute, really has not been resolved beyond the UAE. There, were, there is one provision, which is that the Israel will um, halt their, the, the full annexation of the West Bank. That was the UAE's um, request in, that, in, that, uh, in this deal. But it still isn't really resolving the, the really the, the status quo. It's it's just more so trying to sweep the Israel-Palestine issue under the rug in, in favor of recognizing the uh, the Sunni Shiite um, divide in the Middle East. So that's most of my thoughts on the most of my thoughts and takes analysis, I guess, on the matter.
Um, so it's, it's, it's a good thing, but it isn't as sizable of an impact. It's, it's definitely not peace in the Middle East, as they're trying to claim. So does the panel have uh, any thoughts? I guess a question could be is, what, what are some of the things that the people in the Middle East are saying that could have made this more of a peaceful thing? Like you said, it's good, but what are some of the uh, kind of the requests of the people that think that could have made this better? An actual inclusion of the Palestinians in the deal. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they were almost entirely cut out of the deal. That has been why that has been the Trump administration's sort of general negotiating line is we'll just make the deals for the Palestinians and they just have to agree to it. They really aren't treated as a legitimate player. Um, so then they really don't feel like their their interests are being represented in these in these deals. So if uh, like in my view, and uh, this was um John, uh, John Kerry spoke at a conference I was watching in, in research for this, is that you can't really fully resolve the tensions and the conflict without, in the end, allaying the historic um, Israel-Palestine conflict. So that even if, even if temporarily you have all these, these states in the Middle East aligning against, against Iran and Turkey to combat their expansionism and the, the, their, the export of um, fundamentalism, that even if that's like there's like that temporary alliance that they'll still be amongst like the general population of these countries that they'll still have that animosity towards israel so that was actually why for a long time the uae and bahrain and saudi arabia at the state level claimed to have a distaste for israel even though they were essentially working they had the same ally in the united states and they both had the same enemies it was this sort of song and dance that the governments had to do the monarchies had to do to satisfy their population so the populations for the most part, still have a distrustful view of Israel and uh, feelings of sympathy for the Palestinians. It's just more so the states, the states, the governments um, recognizing the the sort of the temporary alignment of the Middle East. So that makes sense. Yes, thank you. I guess a really big question is is won't, won't this just further entrench the Sunni-Shia split in the Middle East? It, uh, the Shia, I mean, Iran has always been the most, probably I would say the most anti-Israel at the state level. In general, generally it's, and of course you've got like the Wahhab, Wahhabists um, that will frequently talk about like the need to destroy Israel, but that's private individuals the Saudi state, even before, and they still haven't formally, formally normalized ties yet, but the, the, the rumors in the, in the foreign policy world right now are that they're going to be the next ones to do so, is more so that, you know, again, like I said, the song and dance, like, we oppose them, but really, after 1970, really not doing anything. They're just more so, we don't like them, rather than Iran has consistently talked about, at the state level, has, uh, in certain administrations, talked about the need to, to entirely destroy Israel. Um, so the Shia generally, Shias of, of the Middle East have a much worse relationship, at least the states, Shia states, have a much worse relationship with Israel than the Sunni states. And uh, this sort of alignment of the, uh, the Sunni states with Israel probably will, will only further entrench Shia distaste for both, both uh, Israel and the Sunni states. Yeah, well, it seems like this uh, peace agreement comes at some long-term cost, potentially. 
And it also um, pushes, it doesn't really, it's not really including Turkey, which is odd because um, Turkey now is sort of reorienting itself um, to take the place that the Arab states had. So before this, like the Arab states were the champions of the Palestinians and the, the um, and anti-Israel. And now, and in the past, Turkey was pro-Israel, very probably other than Egypt in the night in 1978. At that time, the most pro-Israel state in the Middle East um, and had generally the best relations with them. But now Erdogan is sort of he's reoriented this to be now that the Turkey is anti is at least not only anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. So he's Erdogan, the current president of Turkey, has really shifted like a complete 180 on um, th on that issue. Interesting stuff. Uh, I guess well, I guess that's one issue I'll be paying attention to in the back of in the back of my head on uh, what how that goes out through the next few years because. It's good. I mean, you're right, Ethan. It's good. Normalization between countries is good. Generally, a good thing. But what are the impacts of this thing that is good, like long term? And what about the Palestinians? They do exist. Let's not forget that. So, yeah. No, Ethan. Thank you so much. Any thoughts, questions? Okay, if not, let's move on yeah, to right. our final segment tonight. Alejandro. Hello, everyone. Um, so something that came up in one of my group chats I have with my uh, friends, Austin and Kinzel, was the subject of one of my favorite artists, um, Lady Gaga. She put out an album a couple months ago called Chromatica. And just as a little background, um, I, I'm a fan, but I used to be a really big fan. I mean. There's, she has a song named after me, so I mean, it's an honor. Um, also heard people sing that song to my face like all the time growing up, which was really annoying, but looking back on it, it was kind of endearing, but um, anyways, uh, you know, kind of growing up, seeing her progress through her albums, like um, with Fame Monster and Born This Way and Our Pop, you know, she was kind of always pushing the boundary of what pop could be and, you know, maybe not necessarily, you know, pushing it through the music, but I think more so through aesthetics and her image and really kind of kind of becoming like a cultural icon throughout the years, you know, the 2010s and becoming kind of a larger than life person. And she kind of took um, a little bit of a detour in terms of, you know, that stardom um, in her 2016 album, Joanne, which was more um, a folk kind of, uh, not necessarily folk, but it's a much slower, um, much more kind of uh, woodsy album. You know, it still has some pop on it, but largely kind of Gaga and some guitars and some, you know, definitely not as dramatic as her previous albums. And this had kind of been fueled um, and she had a Netflix documentary called Five Foot Two and she had talked about how, you know, she has a problem with her hip and the constant touring and the const just the constant work and you know it kind of took a toll on her so that's why she made that album which I totally understand but it definitely kind of ranks lower in my um, in terms of her in my ranking of her albums 
And um, with her newest album, Chromatica, it was kind of more, um, I don't know if she was, I don't think she was trying to return to form, but I think she realized there was kind of an aching in pop music, especially of her fans for something to go back to something a lot, of, a lot more upbeat and something a lot more just fun and concept, something that fans could really dig their teeth into and you know really obsess over as they had previous albums. Unfortunately, I'm not really a big fan of the album. Um, it's very dance oriented, very dance forward music. It's most of the album is produced by Blood Pop, which that's his thing. He's a DJ, big DJ. I mean, he mostly specializes in electronic dance music. And the album is very forward with that. And the production's not bad. It's just so, um, it's just so homogenous, the whole thing throughout, in my opinion. Um, and there's not really anything, there's a couple songs that I like, but there's nothing really about it that sticks out to me or none of the production. It's so, so much of the same thing. Um, it kind of is, it's not an entertaining listen for me. And something, it's not something I can really dig my teeth into and really kind of obsess over, like I said. Um, as something, as I have been in her past albums, which kind of makes me sad because I really do love Gaga and I love what she stands for. And, you know, she, in my opinion, she's kind of at a point in her career where she's no longer really the innovator, but, you know, kind of just doing whatever she wants. Um, you know, I, I think um, a lot of people, a lot of artists reach that point in their career where they're no longer the innovator or kind of at the top of, um, the conversations in their art, but kind of just, you know, do whatever makes them happy or do whatever they deem is necessarily for that point in their life. And so I guess the broader question for the panel is, has there ever been an artist, whether it be musical, visual, an actor, anybody, an artist that used to really be obsessed with their work or really be into what they were doing, but kind of became disillusioned with them over time and how did you deal with that? You know, I don't know exactly. I'm trying to think of an answer and I've been thinking of one for a while because that I will admit as much as we do talk about our stories before the show. So I've been trying to think about the answer to that question. And I'm coming short right now, but I can't speak as too specifically on Lady Gaga, who, by the way, Alejandro, congratulations. This is the first time we've talked about someone twice on this show in your segment. Um, just marking a milestone there. Um, but in terms of, I have not listened to the whole album. We did talk about one song on there, Stupid Love. That was mm -hmm. the, the first and only other time we've talked about Lady Gaga on this show. And how it was a fun track, but it's like, if that's the entire, it's like just an entire album flat. Like one of the things about listening to an album is just the, like, it doesn't even have to be like crazy variety, but it's got, there's, there's almost like a story it's telling, like a good album. I, I, are you trying to say like, yeah, the Chromatica isn't just telling that good story? Well, I think kind of the promise of Chromatica was that we were going to be transported to another world because that's kind of the concept of Chromatica is, you know, this other planet um, kind of, I think part of that was fueled by kind of, you know, the political climate and, you know, the desire to want to go to another place. Um, and I think, you know, there's three interludes, the Chromatica 1, Chromatica 2, Chromatica 3, that are just purely instrumentals on the album. The service transition tracks, 
Um, and I just feel like we weren't really, you know, as hard as she may have tried, Gaga, I don't think she really fulfilled the promise of taking us to another world. Um, and I think that's what's most disappointing. Ooh, I mean, yeah. Um, do any of you have like, like I really want to, if anyone here has like just said artist, they've gotten disillusioned. I'm trying to think of one. Artists? Yeah, I can't think of one either, Gideon. Just like, like yeah, music, um, movies, just any type of art that you may have consumed. I mean, the thing is with me, all the examples I'm thinking of are like, I've grown disillusioned with them. It's just that my taste changed. Which That's are very, two very distinct phenomena. Yes. Um, yeah. That's uh, my kind of thoughts. Um, I think um, overall to kind of close this discussion out, I think kind of the overall, um, the, the kind of just disillusionment with celebrity in general, I think more people are becoming tired of celebrity and the concept of what that is. And I think, you know, so much of Lady Gaga's career thrived off of the concept of celebrity and being a celebrity and I don't think, you know, there's, um, I can't really think of an artist since then that's kind of thrived off that celebrity brand. And so I think it'll be interesting going forward in the future to see if, you know, kind of the criticism of celebrity will affect how we view future superstars in music, but not just music, but art in general. Um, so that's, that's my piece. Um, and Overall, I think we all ha we had a really good diverse set of topics for today's show and want to thank everyone for saying what they had to say. This is the end of the review. You can catch us. Well, I don't want to say we have a date for when we drop episodes because we drop episodes, you know, whenever we drop episodes, which is no shade to anyone. Um, we're just not. Um, Stop batting me. We just don't have a set date, but we do record every Friday. And you usually will see one between somewhere around Sunday and Tuesday, kind of to start off your week, uh, which in my opinion, I think listening to the review squared is a great way to start off your week or end your week, depending on the day. Um, you can follow us on social medias at review underscore squared. Um, you can find us anywhere you're on podcasts. Talk to us. We're active on social media. This has been the review squared. The song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime. <laughs>